Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Ken Roth, formerly of Human Rights Watch. He was basically kind of fired slash deplatformed slash blocked from a job he was guaranteed to get at, was it Harvard? Harvard. At Harvard, because he dared to criticize Israel as a guy who literally ran Human Rights Watch. Right. I mean, beyond parody, right? Yes. So now, thankfully, he was rehired after, you know, massive public shame after he wrote a couple articles about it and all the news outlets picked it up, which, by the way, does show pressure works. Yeah. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to have a big national platform like he was able to get access to, then, you know, you can you can create this kind of support and pressure campaign that has a chance of succeeding. The question is, if you don't have all that apparatus at your disposal, then what happens to you? And I think we all know the answer to that. You know what it reminds me of? When um, Jen Psaki was the press secretary and the media asked her, hey, why don't we have free COVID tests? And she was very smug and dismissive and like kind of laughing at it. Yes. And then yes. the media, right. to their credit, is a rare time me giving credit to the media. The media doubled down. Yeah. It was like, what? why would you laugh? at Other countries already have this. Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. And then Biden was like, all right, all right, we're going to do free tests. That's a so great it went point. From, I forgot about that. Bro, we can't even do this to like, oh, of course we were going to do that. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. So she acted you. like it was absolutely absurd to right. even suggest that. So it shows you if we had a functional media on all the issues, mm -hmm. if they did the right thing, we could like pressure the government into doing a lot more good stuff. So anyway, I'm going on a side tangent here. Public but shame is a powerful force. It is a very line. powerful force. So we're going to get to uh, Ken Roth in a little bit. But before we do that, more on the right-wing media civil war. Of course, Crystal, you know this is, I'm, I'm all over this. Yeah, you are. I watched every second <laughs> that everybody Because has, you're all over it, I'm also all over it. Well, I just, I <laughs> dragged proxy. her into it. She doesn't care. <laughs> I I'm do like, care. No bro, did, did you hear what Stephen Crowder said, bro? <laughs> He's like, I, I don't care. <laughs> and then Candace said. <laughs> yeah. like, well, look, here's one of the reasons why I'm obsessed with it is because this is the left. This is left media. Left media rips each other to shreds. It's the narcissism of small differences. It's like, and the other thing is, it's the virtue signaling competition. I'm the most left. I'm the most pure. I'm the most uncorrupted. No, I'm the most left. I'm the most pure. I'm the most uncorrupted. Like, what are we in fucking grade school? Yeah. What are, well, you doing? What are we doing here? That's Those are the pieces I find really interesting is, you know, they just had a terrible midterms. They're about to have a big, ugly primary. And so I don't think it's an accident that you have this split between two sort of titans of conservative media happening right now. And I think Steven Crowder is probably cynically right to recognize there's like a market opportunity because guess what? Division may make your audience, it may make your audience smaller, but what really matters is that they're going to be more committed to you and more willing to like buy your mugs or whatever. And so there's a business opportunity here. So that part I'm interested in. And then the other part that's interesting is it's so much money. Like the the little bit of a look that we've got at the finances that are going on on that side of the aisle is jaw dropping, absolutely jaw dropping. The mil hundreds of millions of dollars that they're apparently playing with over there. And I've heard so many commentators say, "Bro, that first offer from the Daily Wire was disrespectful." Are you serious? I swear. And it's people <laughs> people who are kind of in the business, but they're smaller commentators. I've heard it from a number of them. Like I'll listen. Oh, what's this person's take on it? And they say like. They did lowball him on that one, bro. What? And I'm like, you guys just literally have no idea what you're talking about. Now, now they're the reason why they say that is this. Crowder claims, oh, I have 350,000 Mug Club members. Now, there's zero evidence of that. He's never proven it. He's never showed it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't buy that. That's point number one. Point number two is he was with 
the blaze when he was doing the mug club thing. And so they get a percentage of that. Right. So I don't, I just don't buy that's what he has because people do the math. Oh, if he has 350,000, do the math on that 10 bucks a month and extrapolate out. Yeah. And it's like, you guys, you guys literally have no idea what you're talking about. There's no way that $12.5 million a year is a low ball and is bad. And then Crowder has the nerve to go around saying, bro, I got a whole operation I got to pay for. So like, that's nothing, bro. Yeah. You have a you have an internet show. We have an internet show. We, we know, know the what cost costs. For, for something like this. <laughs> now, again, to be fair, he says, well, we have 20 or 25 employees. Okay, well, number one, I see no evidence of that either. Mm-hmm. Number two, that's not that many employees. Number three, even if I grant you, you have 20, 25 employees, the most his overhead could be, the most, and I'm being way too kind by saying this is like, what, $2 million? Which means he's pocketing $10 million himself? Yeah. So people, there's so much... People don't know what they're talking about when they talk about this issue, and that kind of drives me crazy. Well, the other thing in terms of the money is when you think about Daily Wire, okay, so you've got Shapiro, who's, you know, owner or whatever, like whatever he's making has got to be astronomical. They just brought, I mean, Candace is, I'm definitely, I'm sure, making millions and millions. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is like bigger than either Candace or Steven Crowder. Yeah, they're so whatever Crowder is making, he's got to be making way more than that. And then you think about uh, that Matt Walsh dude Matt Walsh. at this they point. They made him, to be fair, so I don't yeah, know if he was on the contract. Yeah, but still at this point, I'm not sure that, you know, I don't think he's too cheap. And then you put on top of that, they have huge overhead. I mean, they don't just do the video show. They have a publishing imprint. They do these lawsuits. They spend all, millions on advertising. And massive overhead in terms of advertising. So when you look at that, like... Yeah, I know. Okay, they're, they're, I'm not I'm not denying they've got a real base, real viewership, whatever. They've got a real audience. But that is nowhere near sufficient to bankroll all of the expenditures that they're apparently unless, making. Unless yeah. you have billionaire sugar daddies. Correct. Which they almost certainly do. Right. And we know we that... we never will on this side. We never have. Crystal and I don't even do ad reads for, like, small companies. Right. <laughs> never mind but big it, companies. It or... makes me realize, I mean, part of why they're able to, I'm sure you guys probably get Daily Wire ads all the time. Right. Is yeah. be, it's not just organic growth. Again, they're successful. I'm not denying that. But when you have these billionaire backers who can, you know, front the cost and they're in it for the ideological cause and they don't even really particular, particularly care necessarily about the return, then, yeah, you're going to be able to grow by marketing through millions of dollars in advertising to the whole country, et cetera. So that's the other piece that I've been interesting in, interested in is getting like the tiniest little glimpse of what's going on over yeah. there financially. So just to brush everybody up real quick, very brief uh, Cliff Notes version yeah. is – uh, Stephen Crowder was proposed by the Daily Wire a $50 million contract over four years and then an, an option of a two-year extension for $25 million. Um, and Stephen Crowder didn't say it was a Daily Wire, but did a segment like calling out conservative media and saying it's a big con. Um, and he says, hey, the big issue here is these provisions that he showed on his show, which are like, if you have a 50% reduction in your YouTube revenue, the fee is reduced 25%. And, you know, for other things, for Spotify, you if you lose your revenue there, that's a 10% drop in your fee. So there's like things that are contingent upon what happens with these other platforms that you're on. But Stephen Crowder looks at that and says, well, now I know conservative media is in bed with big tech. Mm. That's how he perceives that. That's how he spins that. That's how he, he, he talks about that. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, he he's, says- He's probably right about that, by the way. What, that they're in bed with Daily Wire? I mean, yeah. The fact that they like spend a lot of money advertising on the platform. You don't think they have some special. Okay, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. Okay. They're still taking most of the risk 
the Daily Wire is. Because sure. if it's a 50% reduction in YouTube revenue and they only cut your fee 25%, I'm not they're mitigating t- your yeah, risk yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I'm not even talking about the contract provisions. He's probably correct that they are kind of like in bed with big tech and have a sense of like how far they can go and it's important to their bottom line and their revenue and whatever. Well, I guess they, why I get annoyed by this is because Crowder does the thing that he's accusing Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire of doing. So it's a BS criticism because he's like, oh, they're trying to go play by the terms of service, bro. And that's why they're sellouts. And it's like, you had a whole segment on your show, piss off YouTube, where you mm-hmm. say, I can't say the real stuff here, but come join my thing. And then I'll tell you the real stuff. Mm-hmm. So he does the same thing. Well, oh. That's why I struggle to be like, oh, yeah, they're in big tech. I, like, I don't want to give him any credit for a bogus claim he makes where he's a massive hypocrite. You understand what I'm saying? Of course. Yeah. Okay. But. I, I'm definitely not trying to defend Steven Crowder here because the bottom line is... And I'm not trying to defend Ben Shapiro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, <laughs> to be clear, I, there's, no one to che- fight. <laughs> there's no one to cheer for in any of this. I mean, I do think if you had someone who was a neutral good faith actor who was like, oh, you're so critical of big tech, like, you know, you're spending this much ad dollars to prop them up. What are your relationships like with them? Like, what is this back and forth like? Like, there probably is a legitimate criticism there is all I'm saying. Clearly, Steven Crowder manufactured and engineered this whole thing as just like a cynical ploy to start to his compete own with the Daily Wire exactly. media company and compete so, with the Daily Wire at a time when the Republican base is in danger of fracturing and sort of ripe for that. OK, so we give you all that to show you Candace Owens escalated here. Actually, it's arguable if you could say it's an escalation or it's a tit for tat. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. But Candace Owens says, oh, if you're going to like do this premeditated hit job on mm-hmm. the company I work for, Well, I'm going to say this. Not to my surprise at all. Obviously, this really doesn't have anything to do with the Daily Wire. And his actions are a symptom of much something much larger. And I want to choose my words very carefully here because I'm not angry anymore. Stephen has a lot going on. I guess it's the best way to say it. He has a lot going on. And that should be clear because people don't do stuff like this if there's not a lot going on in their lives. You don't sell out your friend. You don't record conversations. These things are actions of individuals that are perhaps acting out of desperation. You have to dig deeper. You have to look deeper to fully understand the picture of why somebody might do that. And it's certainly not because somebody is upset with a $50 million contract. And because I now am more aware of certain information, rather than being angry I would like to implore my audience and everybody that isn't paying attention to this situation not to condemn him, but to pray for him. Sometimes people need a prayer. Sometimes people need a scripture. You know, Stephen purports to be a Christian, and I believe that he needs to lean into his faith. And uh, I am certain that in the near future, more information will come out. I do not think it is my place to say more than that. Well, probably what I should say is I am unsure at this moment if, if it is my place to say more than that. Okay. Skillfully done. So, all right. So now, <laughs> look, I think everybody has a default assumption as to what she's talking about. And I think people's assumption is true. Okay. So I think she's saying, I have now sources that are going to tell you he's in the closet. He's either bi, gay, or secretly trans. Uh, that's why she took the religious angle. Mm. Hey, I learned some stuff. He's going through some stuff. He says he's a Christian. I think it's time to pray for him. 
I think that's what it is. First of all, do you disagree? That's my first question. You don't know. I don't know. Does that sound plausible to you? It's plausible. Okay, because yeah. I, I told you these conservatives are going to be even more vicious than the lefties are when they're oh, fighting each other. Absolutely, okay? yeah. So, and look, at, I, I just a couple notes about her there. First of all, jacket is flawless. I like it a lot. Second of all, I love how she's like, it's not my place to put that information out there. Well, I don't think it's my place to put that information out there. It's a and, shot across the bow is what it is. And I, I like the part too where she's like, I'm sure this is all going to come out, but we should pr- yeah, pray yeah, for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just... Okay. <laughs> so I want to talk about... So incredible. <laughs> is it an escalation? Like, is it unfair or is it fair? I want to talk about that in a second. But okay. first, uh, let me show you what I think she's referring to. Throw up the graphic there, guys. Okay. So, Steven Crowder, of course, he's massively, massively anti-trans, right? And um, he's dressed up like a woman more times than any straight man I've ever seen in my life. Okay. Now his apologists and defenders would be like, bro, he's just doing it for the comedy, bro. He's just doing it for the comedy, bro. Mm-hmm. Once, twice, maybe, right? When you get to five, six, seven times, then I start to be like, mm, seems like you just want to dress up as a woman, bro. Seems like you just want to do that. Now I'm a bad guy, so I have no problem speculating about what goes on inside Steven Crowder's mind. But my question to you is just like I said before, is do you think this is tit for tat? Hey, it's fair. He, in a premeditated fashion, planned out a hit job on the Daily Wire. Has lied about the contract, by the way, repeatedly, saying the provisions mean something that they don't mean, and I think he knows that they don't mean the thing he's saying they mean. Yeah. Right. And clearly doing this to try to take them down, paint them as an enemy, and create a competitor to the Daily Wire. If he just wanted to, in a you know free marketplace on his own volition, do a competitor to the Daily Wire, but not like gratuitously shiv them in the side that'd be a different story but he clearly is trying to gratuitously shiv them in the side even though i hate the daily wire right so do you view this as like a tit for tat thing or do you think like no she really crossed the line here well there's a couple of principles in play here i mean number one the fact that someone else did something bad doesn't justify you doing something bad so that's like the starting point and i do think that the way that steven set this all up and the fact he he registered that stop big con website that he then got people to go to and put in their email addresses or whatever before he sets up the conversation that he records with the ceo so you can tell it's all like it's all set up it's all premeditated according to them at least they were you know friends and colleagues and helped each other out and on good terms etc so that is genuinely nasty now, someone else, again, like I said, doing something nasty doesn't justify um, you doing something nasty. However, the other principle at play here is, I don't know if you remember this. This was a while ago. There was a political dynamic where back when re- the first time uh, in the early 2000s when Republicans were very vehemently anti-gay and anti-gay marriage and homophobic before gay marriage passed the Supreme Court and they, you know, kind of were quiet for a little while before re-emerging recently stronger than ever. There was a uh, there were a series of Republican congressmen and other elected officials who were like outed as gay. And basically the sort of way that people came to think about this is like, listen, if you it's if you're in the closet and you're just living your life, it's gross to to out someone, right, if they aren't ready to come out in public. However, if you are yourself anti-gay and trying to pass legislation that is anti-gay, then it's fair game and you're a hypocrite. And if you get exposed, like, that's justifiable. Yeah, I'm kind of torn as to whether or not this is fair. But to your point, if somebody is, like, deeply anti-trans, anti-gay, against equal rights, then I do feel more like, yeah yeah, go ahead. Like it's, you should out them because that's a relevant piece of information. It shows how they're a massive hypocrite, shows how they're against people who 
feel just like they feel and are just like they are. Right. So I, I do feel that. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, you can make an argument, if I'm being kind to Crowder, that to him, just taking his position at face value, which I don't. Right. But assuming for a second he's being honest and he's like, no, I think these contracts are exploitative. I think conservative media is in, in bed with big tech. I'm opposed to that in principle. Then he would say, hey, I'm focused on the relevant, pertinent stuff here around the business aspect of it. And you guys are not. You guys are doing petty personal. That attack. is certainly how he has tried to frame it. And that and is, in other videos, he's tried to frame it. That like, He was like, you know, I'm not going to come in here and like, call anybody, call anybody a bitch. Because yeah. Candace had called this thing that he did a bitch move. So he's certainly trying to posture like, I'm just here for the cause. I'm here for the prince. I'm not going to say anything nasty about anyone. But clearly what he did here was nasty and was a betrayal. You yeah. record someone secretly. And it's, a, I mean, it was so clearly a setup. When you've already registered the website... And if you listen to him on that call, too, it's so clear he's, like, posturing for an audience versus just having a, a conversation with a, a, you know, potential business partner. Now, other potential things that uh, Candace could be referring to there is that um, Owen Benjamin, who was a comedian and then he became this weird kind of like alt-right type guy and very strange. I think okay. he moved to middle of nowhere and wanted to start some weird ethno statey type thing. Anyway, that's, <laughs> none of that's relevant, right? That is so weird. But he used to be like a comedian. I think he was on Rogan a few times. And <laughs> after a while, Rogan was like, this guy's like, this guy's crazy. And this is, Rogan has on Alex Jones still. Right. What does that tell you about, Al, <laughs> about Owen Benjamin? Anyway, according to him, the guy who used to work for uh, Stephen Crowder, not Gay Jared, um, he says, I, I, I'm never not going to laugh at not Gay Jared as a name. Nobody has yearned for dicks more than a guy named not Gay Jared. Anyway, um, According to Owen Benjamin, not gay Jared left on bad terms with Crowder, literally packed up his stuff in the middle of the night and left because mm. Crowder's like a psycho and he's abusive and he's got issues, right? Okay. So that's that's another uh, potential thing. So there could be, I mean, yeah, like toxic workplace, but even but maybe even like like some mental illness or something yes, like that. Yes, that, that's the gist of that. That's kind of what I'm getting <clears throat> at here. I mean, we won't know because Candace didn't say it yet, but clearly what Candace is trying to do here is say... If you keep doing this, if you keep attacking, we're going to go nuclear. Yeah, because I mean, this was just a shot across now. the bow. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like I'm going to say it all now. It was like, hey, just so you know, got a little something up my sleeve, bitch. Yeah, that's well, what she's doing there. Said, I don't think it's my place to say. Well, <laughs> maybe. maybe it is. <laughs> so, and then the other thing I wanted to point out, which really undermines Crowder's entire case, is that um, he counteroffered. And when Luke Rutkowski, shout out to him, he's like a right anarchist guy. He was a co-host on Tim Pool show. Mm -hmm. Luke was actually asking some tough questions from time to time of Crowder during the Tim Pool stream. Oh, really? And the one he kept coming back to, did you counteroffer? Mm -hmm. Crowder dodges. Mm. Follow up. Did you counteroffer? Crowder dodges. Mm. Follow up later on. So he's tried twice, didn't get an answer. Later on, he says, mm. people in the audience are knowing, was it you who counteroffered or was it your agent who counteroffered? So in other words, it became like, we know you counteroffered. Now, who's the one who counteroffered? Mm. And then Crowder tries to dodge, then kind of says like, yeah, maybe my agent may have said something. And the, you know, the understanding is maybe it's 120, 130 million that he asked back. Now, if that's the case, this is about money. It's got nothing to do with those provisions about big tech. And I'm I, Stephen Crowder. I'm looking out for the next guy. Right. No, because if they had said yes to your 130 million dollars or if they counteroffered with 100 million dollars, his ass would have taken it, and he would have been, yes, sir, over at the Daily Wire. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. That That's a great point, because it, it really does reveal that 
you know, those same provisions could have been in that contract. And if it was for the amount that he wanted, he wouldn't have said shit. Yeah. I would not have cared about, oh, he's standing up for the little guy, the next creator. It's not about me. It's about the next creator that's going to come. Okay, whatever. Final, final question. Yeah. Would Crowder, let's say, mm-hmm. for argument's sake, mm-hmm. he is either bi, gay, or trans. Okay. If that is what Candace is alluding to, mm-hmm. if that is what comes out as a verifiable fact, yeah. right? Um, would that hurt him big time with the right-wing audience? Yeah. I think that's true, too. I think it'd be, I I think think it'd be pretty too. devastating. Yeah. it's Listen, it's one thing, you know, like, obviously, Ruben is out. He's, you know, he's gay. He's, but he's always been upfront about it. Exactly. The one honest thing about Dave Ruben. <laughs> exactly. So that's different than you are, you know, revealed to be hiding this part of your identity that you're then, you know, have been very critical of other people who have that identity. It's, that's the problem. I lied. Yeah. One more thing. Is that, does that constitute blackmail? Sam Cedar did a video where, where you know, the title was like, um, Candace Owens blackmail Stephen Crowder. Yeah, I think it's fair. You think it's fair to say it's blackmail? Yeah. But I then mean, would that be illegal, what she just did? That's illegal or no? No, because, I mean, for it to be illegal, it'd have to be like, I have these photos, you need to pay me this money or I else. see, I see, you know? I see, I see. The, like so it's a like verbal... colloquially blackmail, but not literal by the law of blackmail. Uh, right. Right. That's, that's how saying? I would view it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I'm really, I'm actually really curious what people think. I should do a Twitter poll on this or something. Like, was was this tit for tat or was this an escalation? Or like, did Candace Owens go too far in saying this? What do you think the poll would say? I think people would I say... I don't know, man. I think it would vary audience to audience. I think mm. if you ask right-wingers, it'll be one reaction. If you ask left-wingers, oh, it'll be another so? reaction. But I don't know what the audience would say because I'm torn on it. I Part of me is like, let him fight. I'm enjoying the fight. Hey, this is fair because Crowder tried to basically maliciously lie and had this plan to take down the Daily Wire. Yeah. Right? So it's like, hey, it's fair because you came. You were the one who came out of the gates swinging you started at the war you started the war so it's fair but then the other part of me is like well since it's getting into the personal life stuff maybe that is different because nominally what crowder wants is business related mm. right and so if 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 crowder's being honest and if his he's sincere in his line of attack of this is about big tech and you guys are better with it, then it's like ah you're going too far you know what i'm saying i mean I, so first of all my guess would be most people would feel it was fair really tip for tad yeah, I people mean, people love messy like the messiness of uh, yeah, Candace gonna, when she's like <laughs> she's calling him a bitch on Tim Pool and stuff. And they're gonna going feel up. like you started the war. Then what do you expect? So I I think that would probably that's my guess as to what the general instinct would be. And even the idea that like oh his thing is about the the contract principles etc. I mean he's saying that Ben Shapiro is a hypocrite and a liar that he's in bed with big tech and then he's posturing as like this principal person. That's personal. That's not just that's business. a good point, Crystal. That's personal. You're kind of swaying me a little bit. You're kind of swaying me a little bit. I think that's a good point. This is some Game of Thrones stuff, man. It really is. And you know how it is. I mean, you know, we're both creators. Like, our our channels and our shows are really an embodiment of who we are. So any sort of attack on the thing that you're doing, even if it isn't directly, it does hit close to home. Because these are, this is our, like, creative expression in the world, too, you know? That's where you mess up. Never read it. Never watch it. Ignorance is bliss. People could attack me all day, every day. I have no idea. No idea what's going on. I'm chilling. I'm doing my thing. I'm telling you guys what I think. I'm the way to live. News. It is the, the way, way to live. live. It is the way to live. Let people be petty and catty and messy and high schooly and whatever, virtue signally. And I'm I'm more pure. I'm And it's like, I don't care. Well, Go ahead. Do that. I'm just going to do my thing here. Let me, on that point, we keep like one more point, one more point. But, you know, there's there's a loss from not engaging with the comments because sometimes people do make a good point that's worth considering there is so there is something lost there but i also find it's actually 
you think more clearly about issues when you aren't just bombarded with like one hundred whatever it is one hundred the chatter is. Yeah. So I actually find it's not just good for me in terms of like my mental health, but it also is helpful for me for my clarity and positioning on any particular oh, issue. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So now we got uh, we got another one for you guys. So there, there's two parts to this story. Um, one, uh, we're going to get to a, a clip in a second. Sean Hannity is calling for a threat of nuclear annihilation casually on his show. The reason why I love this audio clip, too, is because we're getting a throwback to like 2007. Bill O'Reilly's on Sean Hannity's radio show and they're debating. Are you serious? Glorious. I love it. I, I mean, this <laughs> injected right into my veins. This is taking me back to, you know, when I first started the show in 2012 or whatever. I love this. Yeah, show, right? this is the uh, this is the Ben Shapiro and Stephen Crowder of like 2004. Of the, correct. The, the, <laughs> the old guard, the old guard in the uh, r- among Republican commentators. But um should we show that first or should we do the Trump thing first? I'll let you decide. Yeah, show it. You can show the, up Hannity the Sean first? Hannity okay. thing. Let's go with that. All right, that. we'll get to Trump in a second, but listen to what Hannity said. Boris Johnson came out this weekend and he's the only one that said what I said. They're not fighting this war to win it. That means it becomes another quagmire, another Afghanistan. Careful. I don't want America in these long protracted conflicts, Bill. Well, either do I, but you've got to be careful with this. Because you've got an unstable dictator with nuclear weapons. You've got to be careful with this. How do you, how do you be careful, Bill? We're going to give them money. We're going to give them tanks. We're going to escalate. And at what point do we say, we've got nuclear weapons too, Vladimir. Okay. You fire at us, we'll destroy you. Come on. You've got... I mean, he's being pretty clear there that we should effectively threaten nuclear war back. And when you make a guy like Bill O'Reilly go, oh, come on. Right. I mean, I think that says something. Now, by the way, the most disingenuous part of that, in my opinion, yeah. is that Hannity actually, as he's being a massive hawk and a neocon and pro-war and right. pro-escalation, earlier in the clip, he says, look, I don't want another Iraq or Afghanistan. I don't want one of these long wars. Right. So threaten so nuclear threat war nuclear with war. an unstable dictator who's, uh, you know, evidence that he's severely ill. And clearly he's unstable because everybody thought if he invades uh, Ukraine, it's only going to be the eastern portion. And he invaded the entire country. I mean, I think this is insane. I think it's insane to say something like just threaten nuclear war back. Yes, it is completely insane. And, you know, it's just crazy to me how casual people are, too, about uh, where we are in this conflict and the possibilities of this conflict. And um, they go on to have an exchange back and forth where O'Reilly actually credits the Biden administration. He's like, they've been incremental. He says and, it's the only thing they've done right. That's yeah, what he he's got to make mm-hmm. sure to like take his shots right, while, he's, yeah. while he's praising them for this incremental approach. There's a... Um, I think a fiction that's being told in the media right now, too, of like there was a lot of concern, including reportedly from the president, about a potential nuclear escalation coming from Russia because they've drawn these various red lines and we've gone over them. Ukraine has gone over them and there hasn't been a nuclear retaliation yet. So they're like, oh, well, must just all be a bluff. Like they haven't escalated, so we don't need to worry about it. And first of all, I think that's, you know, I I would be leery of jumping to that conclusion. And second of all, the idea that they haven't escalated at all is not accurate. I mean, they escalated by targeting the energy infrastructure in Ukraine, attacking Kiev again, trying to make the winter as like brutal and painful as possible for the Ukrainian people. So even this latest move of us deciding to send tanks after Germany basically pressured us into it only like five days ago, the Pentagon was like, no, we're not going to send these tanks. And if you remember early on in the war, it was like, we will only send defensive capabilities. Tanks were completely off limits because that's considered offensive capability. So 
Anyway, I sort of dissent from both of them in the way that they are viewing this entire conflict. But the idea that the response to Russia's insane nuclear threats is to issue our own insane nuclear threats is terrifying. So Hannity is saying, basically, the tanks aren't enough. Yeah. That's his argument. And yeah. O'Reilly's saying, actually, the, the tanks, tanks are, are a good, good idea. Yeah. So that's what's considered the spectrum of reasonable Exactly. Debate. So that's yeah. the Overton window. And so yeah. anybody who says, like, eh, man, I don't know about the tanks, then it's like, oh, you're a Putin puppet, a piece or whatever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think a, a huge concern here is the tit-for-tat escalation, because eventually, if you just follow that logic, follow that path, eventually you get to a point where the next tit-for-tat escalation is There's like— nowhere else to go. It's World War Three. Right. And that's not hyperbolic. That's actually a very dry, straightforward reading and interpretation. I mean, look at what just happened with the doomsday clock. They moved it to whatever, 90 seconds to midnight or Mm -hmm. something like that. Right. So this is really serious. And it also bothers me how, you know, blase and casual and nonchalant everybody is about every time there's some new thing that happens. It's just like, "Eh, what are you going to do? So I'm 100 percent on that page with you. But I'm all I'm also like. There's just no easy way out of this. Right. Because part of me also says Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. Russia is the aggressor against Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Therefore, anything Ukraine does to defend itself is like, God bless. I'd do this exact same thing if I was oh, in their shoes. Of course. So but then you look at so us helping to facilitate them defend themselves. On the one hand, it's a good thing because you want them to be able to defend themselves. But on the other hand, it's a bad thing because then we're in a proxy war with Russia, which means we're right next to World War Three. So it's just there's no easy way out of this. There are no good answers. And I think people are very glib. And, you know, when they're like, oh, easy, this is simple. Like Hannity goes on in that clip at the end to be like, it's easy. Do this. Well, just oh, to- it's easy. Is it easy, Sean? Is it easy dealing with this, ge- dealing with geopolitics and potential World War Three and a proxy war? Is that easy? Numb nuts. Our, our favorite former president, Donald Trump, also thinks this is easy. I'll get to that in a minute. But oh, one last read it. Yeah, one know. last thing on the tanks, because this was really striking to me. This was from a Politico article about how the U.S. flipped its decision and ended up deciding to send these Abrams tanks. Basically, Germany was under a lot of pressure to send tanks. They didn't want to do it because they didn't want to be out on a limb by themselves and be subject to potential Russian retaliation. So they're like, we're only sending them if the U.S. also sends them. And the quote here from this article is uh, Olaf Scholz, who's the uh, chancellor of Germany, says, He's been adamant in his discussions with Biden that supplying Leopard tanks to Ukraine marks such a qualitatively new step that the U.S. is the world's biggest military power, but also Germany's guarantee for nuclear deterrence must be involved. So just to give people context of what a serious step this uh, deciding to send the tanks and reversing, again, the decision that they've been making all the way along. There was reporting just five days ago that all the military brass was like, no, do not do do this. Really? Yes. Wow. Um, This was such a significant step that Germany was not willing to do it alone, and they wanted to make sure that they had Germany's guarantee for nuclear deterrence. And yet, you know, again, to talk about the like, you may support the tanks, you may not support the tanks. The fact that this is basically not really debated here, that you're really not allowed to even question the idea of whether this is the right direction to go in or not, is part of what I've objected to this whole time along with Ukraine. But don't worry, Kyle, because our former president says that this is all actually very easy to solve. He says on Truth Social, in all caps, first come the tanks, then come the nukes. Get this crazy war ended now. So easy to do. So easy. (laughs) So easy. Just fix it. I would simply fix it. We're going to make Ukraine great again. We're going to make Russia great again. 
It's going to be unbelievable, like nothing you've ever seen. Many people are saying this. But, you know, it's interesting from a political perspective because this is clearly, we're talking about Candace Owen shot across the bow. Like, I mean, this man may be the Republican nominee. This is clearly a shot across the bow of something he is going to be saying on the campaign trail. Now, whether he means it or not is a totally different, totally different beast. But I think he sees this as a, a political fracture that may he may be able to exploit to his benefit, both in the Republican primary. He's taken some... Uh, Shots at DeSantis, like kind of passive aggressive shots at DeSantis on his foreign policy record. So he sees this as a potential anger angle in a Republican primary, but also general election. But like, what exactly would his solution be? I'd love for him to explain. Like, I don't, of course, Trump hasn't. He doesn't even know what the Donbass is, right? Like, he's going to give us a detailed explanation because, like, but he's I said, so good at saying things so confidently that mean nothing. You know, he's just this is like one of his special talents. Yeah, I don't. We're going to make a great to, deal. I know, but I would love to get a little more specific because, like I said, there doesn't – I mean, you know, there was a segment we did a while ago where I said, here's my, like, proposed peace agreement. But even with what I thought was the least bad of all bad options, yeah. like, this could still go wrong in a million different ways. Of course. You don't want to make a deal and then Putin feels incentivized, like, well, this worked. I could just invade another former Soviet bloc country and then demand 30 percent of that land or whatever. You don't want to incentivize that. You know, that that's that's one thing that's a fear for people. Yeah. And but, you know, the flip side is if you don't make some sort of a deal, what do you just want to have this war in perpetuity? Mm -hmm. And where does it end up? So there is no there's no good answer. There's no easy answer. And this numbnuts is out there like this is easy. Just do this. Just easy. Yeah. Well, do what? Do what? What do you want to do? Just what have, do you want to do? Peace. Make a deal. Bring peace, Kyle. I don't know. I mean, this is <laughs> I do not envy anybody in in a position of power dealing with this war. Because, again, it's not – there are no easy answers. What, what I want to ask you is this. We don't need to go too much into this, but um, did they send the, the longest-range missiles yet? No. They Okay, so they still haven't sent the longest-range missiles. So that's Biden still sticking by still hold, hold the original Biden one. mindset of, like, yeah, we're, we don't want to do anything that's going to be perceived as, um, as uh, an escalation. That was the original idea. But with this, these tanks – so that you're you're saying effectively that falls in the same category as it's definitely going to be viewed as an escalation. Is yes, that and Russia. I mean, they reacted immediately uh, the same way. Their embassy in Germany denounced Berlin's extremely dangerous decision because remember it was Germany doing this in partnership with us. They said that could draw Germany into the war. You know, the Russians are, can be very dramatic. They also compared this to like Nazi invasion of USSR and things like that. So I mean, they. In terms of they, they also called it a blatant provocation. So, yes, they see it as a, an escalation. And, you know, it's fair to say they've drawn these red lines. They certainly haven't, you know, gone with a actual nuclear attack. I do think that they have escalated in response to things that choices that we have made on the battlefield. Now, you can say that uh, the choices we've made are right or wrong. But to to pretend like there hasn't been a response from Russia or that that there never will be a response from Russia, I think, is really foolhardy. Yeah. But then the other thing Hannity says at the end of the clip, like Ukraine should actually shoot inside Russia's borders, you know, and no, like I know he's a hawk and he's an idiot and he's a neocon. But then at the same time, it's like. Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. If they I, were to do that in response, it's like, I get why they're doing it. If somebody course. walks up to you at the bar and punches you in the face, you punch back. I, I, you know I absolutely get why Ukraine would potentially do that. The question is if we want to be part of that war. Yeah, well, that's that's the conundrum. It's like, that's, that's so if we never gave any weapons to them at all, right, they this would, thing would already be over. It would be Russia. No doubt. Would Russia have gotten all of Ukraine? Would Kiev even have fallen? 
I, I mean, because remember, it's not just what we supplied this time around, but we've been, we've been training them, supplying them. So the Obama administration started, but Trump really went, you know, much further and started directly training and shipping more aid and more weapons, which, you know, went against this idea that he was like soft on Putin and buddy-buddy with Putin. So, yeah, if we had done none of that, I don't think they would have stood a chance. And I still think if we pulled our support now, I mean, they're whole, not just are they dependent on our military support their economy is decimated. They're dependent on us for just basic functioning of their government. I don't know if you saw Zelensky fired like five cabinet ministers and four regional governors or something like that um, over corruption because they were caught you, getting these sweetheart deals, overcharging military for food, going on lavish vacations. And, so you mean like the entire military, and, you, military industrial complex here in the U.S.? Yeah, right? yeah. But, <laughs> but again, like, you know, so this is part of what we are the only reason they're able to do that is because of our funds, basically. I mean, we're, we're paying their paychecks at this point. They're, they are completely dependent on us. So, yeah, if we withdrew support, it, it would be over. And they, they know that. You know, I don't think there's any denying it. You know who else is completely dependent on us? Who? Alabama, who, uh, you know, they have, what was the story that came out a few years back? Like s- some worms in their water that only happens in, like, developing countries. Like their water infrastructure Tapwork, is so tapeworm, destroyed. Is it tapeworm? Ring, it's one of the worms. I don't remember which one, but it's like a parasite in their water that only exists in third world countries. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, yeah, they're ringworm. like, yeah, Ukraine is ringworm. No, not ringworm. Tapeworm. Tapeworm. Dickworm. It's, it's some kind of worm. Okay, some kind of worm. Right. <laughs> so anyway, you get the point. Is that I think oh, AOC said Ukraine ringworm is, and like got made fun of because that's whatever. common. Anyway. Ukraine is so dependent on us, but it's like, well. Hookworm. Oh, Alabama. Hookworm. That's it. That's definitely it. You don't want hookworm. You don't want hookworm. Or no. any other worm for that matter. Actually, ringworm, little known fact, it's not actually a worm. It just looks like wormish. I remember when you taught me that, my mind was blown. Yeah. It's, like, it's what? actually not a worm. It's not a worm? It looks wormish. So, so why do they call it that? If you're going to get a worm, make it ringworm. They should just call it like really worm. red rash. Circular rash. <laughs> I know. Why do you have to make it sound so I know. Horrifying? I hate it when people do stuff like that. Don't <laughs> if, if you have a choice to go with the intuitive thing or the non intuitive thing, always go with the intuitive thing. Don't go with the thing that makes people think a step or two further. Right. Yeah. Why does you freak people out like it's just that? She's so obnoxious. Yeah. So obnoxious. Yeah. Anyway, we're way off uh, track here, but <laughs> um, there you have it. Hannity calling for casual nuclear escalation. No big deal. And I would like to say on the record, I'm against that. Yes. Same. All right. Let's get right to Ken Roth. As we said before, uh, denied a fellowship initially at Harvard over his criticism of Israel while he was head of um, Human Rights Watch. He was there for, I think, close to three decades. A long time former head of Human Rights Watch. Let's get right to it. Ken, welcome. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's uh, it's my pleasure. So for people who don't know, we first had the chance to talk to you over on Breaking Points. And it was over the fact that Harvard was blocking your fellowship with them over your criticism of Israel. It seemed like they had potentially come under some donor pressure and decided to, you know, reverse what seemed like a certain decision. And then immediately after we recorded that segment, very inconvenient for us over at Breaking Points, but ultimately the right decision, Harvard, under public pressure and scrutiny, decided to change their mind. So I was wondering, for the benefit of this audience, if you could just walk us through what happened and then what led to them changing their mind and if you thought what they, the decision they ultimately came to was sufficient. Okay, well, last April, I publicly announced that I would be leaving Human Rights Watch at the end of August after nearly three decades of leading the organization and building it. Uh, Very quickly, I received a phone call from the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, which is part of Harvard's Kennedy School, asking me would I like to do a fellowship there. 
And, you know, we talked about it back and forth a little bit. Um, I'm in the middle of writing a book. And I thought, yeah, that would be a good place to do that. So I accepted in principle. And the whole thing was just contingent on approval by the Kennedy School Dean, which everybody thought was a mere formality. And indeed, I, I spoke with the dean in July, kind of saying, look, I'm going to be there in September. We should just get to know each other. We had a very nice conversation um, until right at the end, he asked this weird question. He said, do I have any enemies? And, hmm. you know, that's a strange hmm. question to ask me because I've got tons of enemies. You know, I've been yeah. making enemies for three decades. You know, Human Rights Watch investigates human rights violations. We report them, criticize them. Governments don't like that. Therefore, they don't like me. And so I ran through a few examples with the Kennedy School Dean. I explained that actually the, the Chinese government and the Russian government have personally imposed sanctions on me. I mentioned that the Saudi government and the Rwandan government really don't like me. But, you know, I knew what he was driving at. And so I said, and also the Israeli government doesn't like me. Hmm. And, and that turned out to be the kiss of death. Because a couple of weeks later, the car center called me up and very sheepishly had to admit that the dean had vetoed my fellowship because of my criticism of Israel. And so that's where it stood. Um, the, the nation did a very big expose on this. Um, and described, you know, not only, you know, the, the fact of this veto, but also described many big donors to the Kennedy School who are also big supporters of Israel. Um, the nation, I couldn't, you know, say definitively this was donor pressure, but it was the only real explanation out there because Douglas Elmendorf, the Kennedy School dean, had no real personal history on Israel. We didn't think he, you know, had a real, you know, stake in the battle, but, but some of the big donors did. So once the nation published its piece in early January, there was a firestorm of criticism. And um, I, I published a couple of op-eds, one in The Guardian, one in the Boston Globe, but there was really media coverage around the world. And that in turn led to protests at Harvard and an emergency faculty meeting where, as I understand it, not a single member of the Kennedy School faculty voiced support for the dean's veto of my fellowship. Wow. And so two days later, he reversed course. And he said, you know, he had um, made a mistake. So, you know, in the narrow sense, that's good. You know, he, he's no longer claiming that my criticism of Israel is inappropriate. But he never said that explicitly. And, you know, my concerns here, there's a narrow concern and a larger concern. I mean, he, he denied that donors were behind this decision. But he's been you know, citing the confidentiality of the appointments process to not explain what really happened. Mm. And so if he's willing to breach that confidentiality to the point of saying it's not donors, well, then who was it? You know, was it somebody who was taking into account the views of donors? You know, was it, you know, the the, the 10 Israeli officials whom they have every year at the Kennedy School on, on their own fellowships? You know, who knows? He's not talking. But more important, Harvard while, you know, reaffirming its commitment to academic freedom in, in the abstract, has not come out explicitly and said, you know, we support academic freedom even when criticism of Israel is involved. And that's important because, look, as head of Human Rights Watch for three decades, I did have the capacity to make a lot of noise. And ultimately, that's why they reversed the decision in my case. But 
this kind of retaliation for criticism of Israel is a widespread problem. And, you know, what about less visible scholars? What about students? You know, they're not going to be able to make this amount of noise. What assurance do they have that they won't face penalization if they criticize Israel? And so, you know, that's why I'd like to really have Larry Bacow, the president of Harvard, or some senior official at Harvard, make clear that criticism of Israel is within academic freedom, that people will not be penalized for criticizing Israel. And they haven't done that yet. Mm. So if we're if I'm trying as hard as I can to remove my own biases and be as objective as I can, uh, like I'm trying to come up with some sort of reason. If it wasn't a donor issue, what could it be? Like, because... I don't think, is there a way to make an ideological case where they could say, oh, you've just been too hard on Israel and you've singled out Israel and therefore, you know, that's that's why we're doing this? Because that seems to me like a little bit of a stretch. So can you come up with anything that wouldn't be in some way donor related? Well, look, I, I'm, I am target number one, along with Human Rights Watch, for our criticism of Israel from this cottage industry of groups that have been created to defend the Israeli government. Um, they all have these neutral sounding names to kind of cover up their, their one dimensional agenda. But these groups, you know, never criticize Israel. From their perspective, the Israeli government is, you know, never committed a human rights violation in the history of the world. But they jump on and attack anybody who has the audacity to criticize Israel. And so, you know, when I look at the Kennedy School situation, you know, they have these completely biased pro-Israel people who are there on fellowships all the time. You know, as I mentioned, 10 Israeli officials every single year. Um, every once in a while, they'll bring in a Palestinian official. So they had the, you know, the, the chief negotiator for the Palestine Liberation Organization. But that's, a, you know, these are all partisan biased figures. And I think what was objectionable in my case was that Human Rights Watch and I, we're impartial critics. We try to be as objective as possible. We apply the same principles to Israel as we do to a hundred other governments around the world where we regularly report. And it's because of that impartiality that our criticism stings. And that's why we are enemy number one for this cottage industry of, of groups that defend the Israeli government. So, you know, they come after us all the time. Now, you know, did the Kennedy School dean reach out to them? Did he read some of their stuff and was he fooled by them? Who knows? He, he didn't bother coming back to me after that initial conversation. Mm. He just, you know, decided on the basis of what clearly was, you know, very partial information about our criticism of Israel. And, you know, why is he getting into this? You know, the Kennedy School is known as one of the nation's foremost public policy institutes. Um, they teach domestic policy and foreign policy. A big foreign policy issue is how do you deal with the Israeli government, with its endless occupation, with its repression of, of Palestinians, um, that's a complicated question. There are different sides to that, but you would think that the Kennedy School would benefit from, you know, one of the leading human rights reporters on that situation. You know, I representing Human Rights Watch. And he didn't want that. So, you know, this is not academic freedom. This is trying to limit um, those who can engage in the debate and a central foreign policy question that students at the Kennedy School want to hear about. Yeah, well, and sometimes just the uh, 
knowledge of the existence of that cottage industry, of the existence of donors who would likely be unhappy about the appointment. You don't even have to directly get for the the feedback or the criticism before you realize, you know, this dean may have realized like, oh, this is going to be a problem for me. I just don't want to deal with it and sinks your uh, fellowship before even receiving that pushback from anyone is one possibility. And that gets to your point of, you know, you were able to, through a lot of national press, a lot of international press, uh, on campus protests, you were able to force their hand and sort of shame them into making the right decision. But that is far from the norm in these instances. In fact, I just came across another high profile instance, uh, one of your former colleagues at the Human Rights Watch, Sarah Margon, who had to withdraw from contention for a top human rights position in the Biden administration over her criticism of Israel. So if you could speak a little bit to that case and then, you know, the broader implications here, because there's a lot of conversation, Kyle and I talk about it a lot about, you know, censorship and uh, academic freedom and intellectual freedom and how you make sure that's preserved while maintaining your your democracy. It seems to me that this is one of the most difficult and most sensitive issues um, where the people are most often censored, uh, whether it's their opinions at newspapers, whether it's their opinions at, um, at, you know, prestigious universities like Harvard, or whether it's within uh, a Democratic administration like Joe Biden's. Well, what happened with Sarah Morgan, I mean, let me explain. She um, was a close colleague. She was Human Rights Watch's Washington director for many years. Um, she is incredibly talented, incredibly objective. Um, she's Jewish. You know, the idea that you know, that she would be somehow biased against Israel or, or overboard is just so far from the truth. And indeed, hardly anybody thinks that. But the Senate has this weird tradition where any senator can veto a nomination. Mm. And so in this case, one Republican senator didn't want her to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights, you know, the top human rights position in the State Department, and for two years maintained a veto. Wow. Now, um, you know, Senator Menendez, the, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, or, or Chuck Schumer, the, um, you know, majority leader, they could have just said, well, forget you. We're going to put her forward anyhow. She's eminently doubt, you know, qualified and, and clearly has no bias against Israel. But, you know, they have this tradition of comedy in the Senate and they don't really want to break this tradition where, you know, one senator can block everything. So they let that one senator block her nomination. And and mm-hmm. she waited for two years and finally decided, okay, I've had enough of this. I got to get on with my life. So she, you know, withdrew her her candidacy. It's ridiculous. You know, now that, you know, that's politics. That's the the way the Senate runs. It is different from a university. And, you know, a university, you shouldn't be able to have one person who can impose their views or impose the views of others um, and compromise academic freedom in that way. Now, you know, the Kennedy School Dean, you know, as I said, I don't think it's his personal animosity, but he said that people who matter to him objected to my fellowship. Hmm. Who are those people? You know, he says they're not donors, you know, but he's not saying who they are. So we have no idea. Hmm. But, you know, regardless, that kind of external influence, that, you know, effective effort to compromise academic freedom, to undermine intellectual independence, that is not what Harvard should stand for. And, you know, if indeed donors were behind this, if there's any university, any place that can resist donor pressure, it's Harvard. Harvard is the richest university in the world. You know, its endowment, you know, rivals the economies of, of various countries, you know. And, and if they can't say, 
clearly we are not going to let donors or any outsider compromise academic freedom at this institution. We believe in intellectual independence, free thought, regardless of external concerns. If Harvard can't do that, what are tiny little colleges going to do? And, and, and that's why I think that, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a spotlight is on Harvard and they still, you know, they did the right thing in my case, but they right. haven't done the right thing in terms of affirming academic freedom. And well, they had to be forced too. They had to be exactly. forced by public pressure. Publicly shamed. You used your platform to great effect with those brilliant articles. I mean, I read the one in The Guardian. I thought it was phenomenal and it kind of ignited a firestorm. But anybody who doesn't have your prominence already, like you said, is kind of in a terrible position. It reminds me of the Intercept article from a few years back. A teacher, I believe in Texas, uh, lost her job because she criticized Israel. Right. And, you know, what can she, there was one article from The Intercept. That was it. That was the only people that covered it. Over these anti-BDS laws, which, by the way, when they go to the courts are found to be unconstitutional every single time um, for obvious reasons. You know, one of the things I was curious about uh, with you, Ken, is you mentioned that Sarah is Jewish. You also are Jewish. Um, according to your Wikipedia page, at least your father was a Jewish refugee who fled Nazi Germany. No, I, I, I am, right. No, I am Jewish. Um, both my parents were Jewish. And indeed, my father did flee Nazi Germany as a 12-year-old boy in July 1938. Jesus. So do you feel like part of why there's a particular sensitivity around you is because as uh, a Jewish American and the son of, you know, Jewish refugees, it makes it harder to tag you with that label of anti-Semitism that is used to dismiss a lot of legitimate criticism of the state of Israel in other instances. I think that's part of what drives this cottage industry of Israel defenders crazy, but it actually hasn't stopped them from accusing me of, you know, being anti-Semitic, of right. being a self-loathing, Jew hater, right. self-hating yeah. Jew. Yeah. Jew. You hear that all the time. Yeah. All those things come out. You know? And and I mean, look, I'm, I'm used to this. Like, I can deal with it. You know, I mean, people who know me know it's ridiculous, so fine. But what concerns me is that you know, anti-Semitism is a very serious problem. It is a threat today to Jews around the world. But if people begin to think that the charge of anti-Semitism is just a ploy to silence criticism of Israel, they're going to start taking anti-Semitism less seriously. And you're going to find the situation where, you know, this small group of people who think they're helping the state of Israel are actually harming Jews around the world by, by you know, undermining the important fight against anti-Semitism. But that, you know, sort of short-term pragmatism is what a lot of these partisan defenders of the Israeli government are now doing. I mean, honestly, they they this is feeding the conspiracy theory because it allows the conspiracy theorists and the anti-Semites to go, ah, see, organize big money and look who's cracking down on who. And so it's really doing a harm to the very legitimate cause of fighting against anti-Semitism. To touch on what you said before, Crystal, as of 2021, 35 states in the U.S. have passed bills and executive orders designed to discourage boycotts of Israel. Many of them have been passed with broad bipartisan support. Most anti-BDS laws have taken one or two forms, contract-focused laws requiring government contractors to promise that they are not boycotting Israel, and investment-focused laws mandating public investment funds to avoid entities boycotting Israel. So, and this, I mean, this is something that that's uniquely bad because, you know, it, in this country, you can boycott this country. You right. can boycott the United States of America in America, but there are laws that are designed that you can't boycott a, a foreign country. I mean, that seems to be really authoritarian. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me um, elaborate on this a little bit. I mean, first, just to be clear, Human Rights Watch actually doesn't endorse 
the BDS movement. Um, it, it's something broader than what we were concerned with. So we've never endorsed it, but we uphold the right of people to advocate to boycott Israel. Um, one of our particular concerns has been the settlements because the Israeli government's construction of settlements in occupied Palestinian territory is actually a war crime under Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, which prohibits transferring um, the occupier's population onto the territory of the occupied. And so it's it's a blatant war crime. Um, it's something that I wouldn't be surprised if the International Criminal Court ends up charging people about. Mm. We have urged businesses to avoid complicity in these war crimes, to avoid doing business with the settlements. Now, Human Rights Watch never said avoid doing business with Israel. We don't take that position. But we did say stay away from the war crimes. And the Israeli government has then come back and said, this is Israel. The settlements are Israel. You're advocating a boycott of Israel. And they just equate the whole thing. Now, wow. you know, that's yeah. not what we say. They're lying. But that's yeah. the cheap response. Yeah. And that's how they try to then tar everybody who even advocates avoiding complicity in the war crime settlements. They try to tar them as supporters of a boycott of Israel, which is not what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. To your point, there's I mean, there's different varieties of boycotts, divestment and sanctions. And one of them, to your point, is like boycott all of Israel. And there's others who say, hey, just the occupied territories. Like, that's it. And if that's smeared as anti-Semitic and that's smeared as beyond the pale, then effectively the people who are criticizing there are just lying about the nature of what people are advocating for. Go ahead, Crystal. Um, well, I was going to bring up, I think, uh, and we discussed it, this on Breaking Points as well. I mean, part of the reason why Human Rights Watch has become such a, a lightning rod here is because you issued a report that described uh, official Israeli government policy as apartheid. And obviously there's a real sensitivity around the use of that label. Um, I wonder if you could just, you know, based on the facts that were contained in that report, lay out why you think that is an appropriate descriptor. And I also wonder, you know, maybe this is an easy question, but I'd love to to hear your thoughts on it. Would everyone be able to see this and admit it really clearly if Israel wasn't a, you know, close ally of the United States? Well, the Human Rights Watch, um, April, a year and a half ago, um, issued this report that you're referring to, where we found that the Israeli government is responsible for the crime against humanity of apartheid. Now, we did not, we very explicitly did not make a comparison with South Africa. This was not a historical analogy. Rather, we were applying international law. There are two treaties that define the crime of apartheid. One is the UN Convention Against Apartheid. The other is the Rome Statute to the International Criminal Court. So we took this legal definition, and then we did a very detailed factual analysis, uh, more than 200 pages. And when you read the facts, it is not even a close call. I mean, just to give you a sort of a, a, a quick sense of it, you know, if you put yourself in the middle of the West Bank, I mean, on one side, you will have, you know, this Israeli settlement where Israeli citizens live there. It's, you know, very nice. They have lots of water. They, they, but most important, they live under Israeli civil law with all the rights that that implies. Right next door, you'll have a Palestinian village in what's known as Area C of the West Bank. And there, you know, if the if a villager even tries to add a bedroom onto their apartment, it'll get demolished. Um, they have to travel on separate roads. They need passes to move around. There are huge restrictions on their day-to-day life. They live under military law with very few rights. And so, I mean, you just look at this side-by-side comparison and you say, this is apartheid. Now, 
frankly, I, you know, Human Rights Watch has been criticized. Why didn't we call it apartheid earlier? And I think that is a fair criticism. But, you know, the explanation is that we, I think, probably for too long, fell for the typical response, which is, yeah, you know, there's oppressive discrimination. Yeah, life isn't great for the Palestinians, but there's the peace process. You know, this will all go away when the peace process is resolved. And we just got tired of that answer because there is no more peace process. The right. peace process is utterly moribund. The Israeli government, you know, particularly Netanyahu's new far-right government, is doing everything they can to undermine any possibility of a two-state solution. So we just said, forget what, you know, this theoretical peace process is going to produce. We're going to look at the reality today. The reality is, you know, effectively one state with radically different legal regimes governing two sets of people. And and we found that, you know, that is apartheid. And indeed, every single human rights group that has looked at the situation completely agrees with us, including B'Tselem, the leading Israeli human rights group. So this is not a controversial issue if you are objective, if you're fact-oriented. But of course, the partisan defenders of the Israeli government hate it. And they have, you know, been vitriolic in coming after Human Rights Watch, myself and others, because of this conclusion. So uh, one of the things Crystal and I were just talking about this before our discussion here um, at the U.N., they have I believe it's called the General Assembly and then they have the Security Council. And a common refrain you hear from uh, defenders of the Israeli government is like, why are you singling out Israel um, in an unfair way? Uh, and of course, the implication is there's maybe underlying anti-Semitism or something among the global community. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, you'd be a much bigger expert on this stuff than I am. But number one, the General Assembly stuff is it's like all the nations and it's non-binding. It's just sort of like virtue signaling about what people think is the right thing. And then the um, the Security Council, it, the stuff actually is binding. And my understanding is even though a lot of stuff has come out of the General Assembly condemning the Israeli government for for their crimes in the Security Council, you don't get much movement at all. In fact, I think perhaps the opposite criticism could be levied that like the international community is not doing nearly enough to to fight back against this, what I believe you accurately described as apartheid. So do I have the 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 general gist correct there? Because I remember back when Obama was leaving office and on his way out, he very famously abstained from a vote in the Security Council that condemned Israeli occupation. He did, they didn't, the U.S. didn't even vote in favor of that. Like, yeah, we're going to condemn the Israeli occupation. They just abstained saying we're not going to block the resolution. And that led to an outcry. Yeah. I mean, your, your analysis of the Security Council is, is right on. Um, because of the U.S. veto, the U.N. Security Council hardly ever addresses Israel. And indeed, the one exception is the time you mentioned at the end of Obama's term where they abstained and allowed a criticism of, of the Israeli settlements in the West Bank to go through. Um, and it's because of that, you know, utter abdication that then people look to other UN forums. And the principal one is actually not the General Assembly, but it's rather the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva. And the criticism of the Human Rights Council is really twofold. You know, one is that they have too many resolutions on Israel. And the second is that Israel and Palestine are the only situation in the world where there's a standalone agenda item only about them, you know, rather than a country coming up in a more generic agenda item for, say, you know, gross abuses or something. And so, you know, those are fair points. And, and Human Rights Watch has come to the Western governments and said, okay, let's solve this. Why don't we, you know, introduce 
one single combined resolution. So not a bunch of resolutions, just a single resolution. And don't introduce it under this special agenda item. Introduce it under just a generic agenda item like for every other country in the world. So this way we get rid of the problem. We just have one critical resolution. Now, will you support that? The answer is no. So that kind of gives the lie to, to this criticism. Like, yeah, there are too many resolutions, but the, the big Western powers and particularly the U.S. government won't even support, you know, a single resolution mm-hmm. under a generic agenda item. So this is about covering up for Israel. It's about defending Israel regardless of what it does. It's about ignoring the apartheid. It's not about a fair process for Israel. Um, so Netanyahu is back uh, prime minister of Israel again. Obviously, we've had previous Netanyahu governments. But um, from what I've seen and analysis thus far, this one seems to be of uh, a different type, even more right wing, even more fringe, even more radical. I wonder if you could uh, lay that out for us, because, you know, I get intimidated, like I'm not an expert on Israeli politics. I don't want to screw things up. But uh, it seems like there's almost an unmasking, a willingness to be really open about some of the the ugliest policies that they're willing to entertain, willing to uh, pursue uh, fringe elements that they are now willing to embrace directly in the government. So could you lay out some of those pieces now? Yes. I mean, as you note, um, you know, Netanyahu, who is, who is facing corruption charges, was desperate to get back in office because he thinks that that's the best way to salvage his future. And therefore, he cut a deal with some extreme right-wing figures, you know, far to the right, people who were beyond the pale, you know, just a year or two ago. And suddenly they're in government. They're being getting, given, you know, minister positions. This, you know, radical government is doing a couple of things that I'll highlight here. I mean, one is that they would like to expand the settlement project. They haven't begun that yet, but that's clearly part of their agenda. And as I note, the settlements in and of themselves are war crimes. Expanding them is, you know, again, a war crime. So that's like should be beyond the pale, but that seems to be a big part of what they want to do. But the thing that has been bringing um, tens of thousands, if not 100,000 people onto the streets of Tel Aviv to protest against this new far-right Netanyahu government is a proposal to undermine the ability of Israel's highest court, the Supreme Court, to overrule legislation as being, you know, effectively unconstitutional. Mm. Um, you know, in the U.S., we're, we're used to this. You know, the, the Supreme Court has judicial review, and it is, you know, the guardian of the Constitution. We don't always like what it does. You know, it, it just, um, you know, reverse the right to an abortion. But people accept that there is a need for um, judicial review. Netanyahu wants to get rid of that. He wants to allow the Knesset, which is the Israel's parliament, to overrule the Supreme Court. So you can see the Supreme Court coming in saying, this is unconstitutional. And the Knesset, by you know a, a single vote, you know, it could be 6159 saying, sorry, we're going to do it anyway. And this is, you know, basically undermining the rule of law. And it's undermining the whole concept of rights because, you know, rights are by their nature counter-majoritarian. You know, rights matter when you have, you know, a majority that wants to do something and the courts say, no, that would violate people's rights. We're not going to let you do that. But if the government can say, sorry, we're going to do it anyway, then there are no rights. There's just, you know, the court offers an opinion and the Congress rejects it. And, and you know, you, you can see how that would work in the United States. You know, the court would say, you know, sorry, there's a, you know, there, there's a right to say, you know, interracial marriages to go back to, you know, kind of a landmark opinion from way back. And Congress saying, sorry, we don't like these. 
you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, there's a right to same sex marriage. Nope. Sorry. We don't like that. You know, so this is what Netanyahu is proposing for Israel. And, you know, wifely, there have been massive demonstrations against it. He's determined to plunge ahead anyway. So, so to that point, follow up, do, do, do the courts have a history of being a little more reasonable than the Knesset and, and more so than the prime minister? Yes. They do. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. The, the courts in Israel are, you know, are relatively professional. And, and while I think they have been, you know, moving to the right as societies move to the right, they still have a, a significant degree of independence. And, you know, insofar as people are able to look for the enforcement of their rights, they look to the courts. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that you alluded to earlier is the fact that the expansion of these settlements, I mean, it, it makes a two-state solution virtually impossible. Here in the U.S., we have, you know, with the amount of distance we have in the state, we sort of hold on to this fictional notion that, oh, yes, the peace process, oh, yes, the ideal solution is a two-state solution. But in, you know, reality on the ground is that's impossible at this point, And the Netanyahu's of the world are working to maintain that impossibility. Um is there still that sort of like fictional notion of a two-state solution in Israel, or has that been totally dispatched with in terms of the domestic political dialogue? I'm afraid that, you know, domestically, the number of people who want a two-state solution are a very distinct minority at this stage. Um, and if, if you look at the West Bank, I mean, I, um, I had the privilege of having a tour of the West Bank led by um, somebody from a group known as Breaking the Silence, which is an Israeli group made up of former members of the Israeli army who served in the occupation, hated the abuses that they were forced to commit, mm-hmm. and then broke and decided to form a human rights group. So, you know, one of the experts brought me to a series of hilltops in the West Bank and and just like showed to me the kind of Swiss cheese that is left of Palestinian communities with Israeli bypass roads and Israeli settlements and Israeli outposts, just, you know, dividing up the territory, making it harder and harder for any conceivable viable state to emerge. So, you know, the only way that you could have a viable state would be to have, you know, a significant um, rolling back of the settlements or rolling back of all these bypass roads and the like. But there's a huge constituency in Israel that is dead set against that. So I do fear that the two-state solution is dead, that we are stuck with what, you know, Israelis refer to as a one-state reality. And then the question comes, you know, is, you know, this one-state reality includes roughly 50-50 Jews and Palestinians. Are they going to have equal rights or is it going to be apartheid? Right. And so far, the answer is apartheid. And Netanyahu is showing no determination to change that. He just, you know, tries to lambast Anybody who calls it apartheid and the partisan defenders of the Israeli government then say, oh, that's anti-Semitism to call it apartheid. And, you know, part of the problem here is actually there is a um, a so-called working definition of anti-Semitism that was proposed by um, the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, which um, includes various examples of what anti-Semitism is supposedly. And that includes, you know, alluding to kind of the racial discrimination of the Israeli state. And it's basically inviting people to say, if you charge apartheid, you're anti-Semitic. Many people have kind of drawn on that that working definition to make that charge. And you know, as I noted, that completely cheapens the concept of anti-Semitism. And it it, you know, tries to avoid through name calling this very logical legal analysis as to what the reality is today 
in for, for Palestinians under Israeli occupation. And so, you know, this is not doing any benefit to the fight against anti-Semitism. And it's just obscuring, but increasingly unsuccessfully, the reality of how the Israeli government is treating Palestinians. So there are um, there was reporting recently about how the Knesset passed laws banning uh, Palestinian spouses. I don't know if it's technically Palestinian or if it's like Jews marrying Muslims or, or you know, what the exact law is. But um, can you talk about perhaps that law and maybe some other laws, which kind of a plain face reading of it is that this is not equal not rights? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I think what you're referring to is not so much that they're banning marriage. I mean, they can't really do that. But um, the question is, you know, let's say that you are um, a, a Jewish woman in Israel, an Israeli citizen who marries a Palestinian. Um, in fact, one of my colleagues is precisely that at Human Rights Watch. Um, as an Israeli citizen, you would think, oh, well, you know, your spouse can join you in Israel. No, that's not the case. Wow. Um, you need permission. And the government basically doesn't give permission if you're a Palestinian, you know. And so, you know, she is now forced to live with her family in this, like, you know, little outpost in the in the West Bank. Um, but, you know, the, something that, you know, Americans take for granted, it, you marry somebody, even if they're not an American, you can move them to the United States. They very quickly can become citizens. You know, there's a recognition of the importance of, of family unification. That doesn't exist when an Israeli Jew marries a Palestinian. I mean, it seems watching from afar that Israel has continued to shift further and further and further and further right, and maybe even more to the point, more and more authoritarian. And it raises a question in my mind, which is, you know, Israel was set up effectively for the most empathetic and understandable reasons of all time as an ethnostate but also with the idea of this is going to be a democracy. I mean, do those two concepts just fundamentally not work together? I actually think they could work together. I mean, part of the problem is, you know, if if the Israeli government were content with its, um, you know, called the 1967 boundaries, you know, the boundaries that existed just before the 67 war, in which, at which point the Israeli government radically expanded its boundaries by, by occupying the West Bank and Gaza, as well as at that stage, much of Sinai. Um, in doing that, it brought in many more Palestinians. And, and just given demographic trends, um, if you include Gaza and the West Bank today, there actually are, you know, as many Palestinians as Jews, if not slightly more. And the trend is, is in the direction of, of a Palestinian majority. So, you know, if the Israeli government is going to maintain its maximalist territorial ambitions, um, it is not going to have a Jewish majority. Um, and then it, you know, either accepts that, that's what happens in democracy, or it imposes apartheid. Right. Now, you know, some real radical people say, oh, let's just expel the Palestinians. You know, that has not overtly been what's happening, but they certainly do make it difficult for you know any Palestinians to come there because um going back to even 1948 you know many Palestinian refugees or Palestinian residents of what at that point was Palestine were expelled they were chased from the country and these refugees are still sitting in Lebanon or Jordan or what have you um they're not permitted back because that would you know again make the demographics more unfavorable for Israeli Jews so you know the, the Israeli government's own kind of territorial ambitions are part of the problem here. But if you accepted the sixty-seven boundaries, there would be a comfortable Israeli Jewish majority um, and a comfortable democracy. 
Um, and I'm not, you know, I, I don't think that you should even, you know, insist on a Jewish majority for democracy. But, you know, I understand that that's where um, the Israeli government is coming from. But it could have that if it wasn't maximalist in its territorial ambitions and trying to incorporate, you know, the West Bank and Gaza. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that would have been the the deal along the 1967 border seems to be the one where there was a window for a while that this could actually get done. And this is the way to do it. And, you know, we, we just we missed that window. Uh, is there in your estimation any appetite to to address this in the international community at the moment? Because, I mean, I see for understandable reasons, Russia and Ukraine is sort of at the top of everybody's mind in the international community. Uh, but. You know, I feel like the only time this issue even gets brought up in in U.S. media is when every however many years, two, three years, you have the what uh, some Israeli officials call cutting the grass in, in Gaza, where, you know, you see a bombing campaign and there's all these civilian casualties. So the issue like pops up once every few years, but then it just seems to go away. So is there is there anything happening at the international level to, hey, we need to do something here. Let's like sit down and iron it out. Well, first, I mean, with respect to the Israeli government, I mean, the Netanyahu strategy is just to endlessly kick the can down the road. So never to address the problem, just keep the occupation going forever. Don't give the Palestinians any rights and just hope people don't notice. You know, it's just a temporary occupation, even though it's been going on since 1967. Um, The international community has been, you know, far too accepting of that situation. And the U.S. government is, is the foremost offender. Now, Given the series of reports, including Human Rights Watches, about the apartheid that the Israeli government is imposing, there are more and more governments around the world that are accepting that analysis. And so, you know, I wouldn't say it's a majority by any means right now, but there is international movement toward accepting that analysis. Um, the UN Human Rights Council has actually set up a commission of inquiry to, to look into the matter. Um, the U.S. government isn't there yet. You still can't talk about apartheid in Washington. But that's just, you know, because they put on blinders. It's because they don't want to look at the reality. Um, and I don't think it's ever going to start with Washington. You know, what's going to start is, you know, more and more European governments are going to accept this reality. And ultimately, you know, Washington's going to look as alone as it does at the Security Council when it vetoes or threatens to veto any critical resolution on Israel. Do you think that the Russia-Ukraine war could possibly represent a, a fraying of relations between Israel and Washington? Because, you know, obviously we've been a steadfast ally of Ukraine. Um, you know, just news this week that we are going to uh, ship Abrams tanks, something that we'd resisted doing before, a significant escalation and, you know, in our, our support for the country. Netanyahu has signaled, you know, a shift of a more sort of friendly attitude towards Russia uh, with regards to this conflict and, um, you know, has been had sort of buddy buddy relationship with Putin as well. Do you think that that could be a potential fracture point or, or point of dissent disagreement in the relationship? And to be honest, I don't think that's going to be the issue so much as, as the way Netanyahu treats Palestinians. In other words, the U.S. government seems to have accepted that Netanyahu um, needs to maintain good relations with Russia so that Russia continues to let the Israeli military bomb in Syria, where there's a significant Russian military presence, because the Israelis are trying to bomb weapons convoys that are being shipped from Iran to Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. So there's, I think, an understanding in Washington that the Israeli government is just not going to be critical of Russia, you know, despite Putin's war crimes in Ukraine, despite his, his you know, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. 
Um, so I don't think that that's going to be the deal breaker. But, you know, if this government, you know, continues to undermine the checks and balances of, of democracy, if it law, if it proceeds with its efforts to expand and, and, you know, possibly even annex the settlements, that's the kind, those are the kinds of steps that really could outrage people in Washington finally. And then finally on, on that point, I mean, there isn't a lot of dissent from the consensus in D.C., but you do have a few politicians on the Democratic side who are willing to voice criticism of Israel and get, you know, tagged as anti-Semites. Ilhan Omar just this week is in danger of losing her uh, committee postings because of her um, comments critical of the Israeli government. Um, do you think that there has been somewhat of an opening and a shift in terms of what you are allowed to say with regards to the Israeli government? Yes. I mean, the, the last Gaza war, what was about two years ago, um, there were some very interesting developments during that war. Um, Senator Menendez of New Jersey, who is the chair of the Center for Foreign Relations Committee, was quite critical of the Israeli government. And um, Representative Gerald Nadler um, who I believe was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, also wrote a very good letter on behalf of a dozen or so Jewish members of Congress mm. criticizing Israel. So, you know, these were interesting developments. You know, I hadn't seen things like that before. Right. And I do think that there is, you know, a tiring of this endless Israeli repression. You know, that the, there, you know, no end in sight, no willingness to engage with, with any kind of reasonable solution to the Palestinian situation. And so, you know, there has been a reluctance to move on that, um, really because of APAC, you know, because there's a, you know, a small group of very right wing American Jews who care deeply about this and are willing to, you know, attack anybody who breaks from Israel. Yeah. That's not where the vast majority of the American Jewish population is. And, and, you know, there's going to come a time when, um, majority views, you know, particularly among younger Jews who tend to be much more liberal, much more, you know, willing to be critical of Israel than, than their, you know, older, older Jews. There's going to come a time when that's going to become a more significant influence in Washington. And where, you know, if you look at sort of J Street versus APEC, you know, APEC right now is by far the more powerful institution. But over time, I think the J Street perspective, the more reasonable perspective about Israel is the one that's going to prevail. Yeah. And oftentimes I think it's it's a funding issue more than anything else. Why some voices end up being louder in Washington, D.C. You know, I'm reminded of back when. Uh, the Obama administration was negotiating the Iran agreement and how Netanyahu was basically trying to undermine it at every turn and kind of prevent us from doing it. And that's Netanyahu aligning with the far right in the U.S. and the Trump vision of ripping up the agreement. And, well, we we see how that worked out, right? How the, the agreement was working. According total to, disaster. Yeah, the agreement was working. Disaster. The IAEA said, you know, over 10 times, hey, they're following the agreement to the letter. And then Trump gets in there, rips it up. And so anyway, uh, Ken, we can go on and on and on with you. This is a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Can you um, plug, uh, you know, whatever you're doing now, whatever uh, website or social media you have? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm very active on, on Twitter. Um, my handle is at Ken Roth and I'd be very happy to, you know, share this episode and, and people should just, you know, check in. I mean, I, I address, you know, a hundred situations around the world, but I also, you know, tweet on, on the Israeli Palestine situation. Fantastic. Yeah. And I know you're working on a book. Um, we're excited to see that when it comes yeah. out. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. All right. That was Ken Roth, formerly of Human Rights Watch. 
Uh, by the way, as we were talking there, Crystal, I went to, I saw uh, trending on Twitter, nine Palestinians. Click it. Israeli forces killed at least nine Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, including an elderly woman. The raid at a refugee camp is one of Israel's deadliest in years. At least 29 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces this month, including five children. Um, and that's like, you know, when they did the bombing campaigns, what was it, 2014, Operation Protective Edge, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, the numbers came back from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and others. And it was like 80, 90 percent of the people who died were innocent civilians in that. Yes. And it reminds me of the the conundrum that always comes up when you talk about this issue. I'd love to ask somebody who's like a staunch defender of Israel the following question. If Palestinians resist violently, that's called terrorism, right? Can never be self-defense if they're Palestinian. It's, that's that's terrorism from their perspective. But then if they resist peacefully, you know, nonviolent pacifists like MLK and the civil rights movement, that gets no coverage and doesn't move the ball at all. How do I know? Because the Palestinians have been doing that. Right. They've been doing that for a very long time. And then hold on. Yeah. And then if they resist with boycotts, right. that's called anti-Semitic. So, so what would you like them to do? And the real answer is they don't want them to do anything. Just lay in a chalk outline of yourself and let Israel roll over you. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the one thing I disagreed with him on is... That's no state thing. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Because if you... Yes, if you, you know, stayed with the more minimalist boundaries, the 1967 boundaries or whatever, like you could maintain that Jewish majority for longer and maybe there'd be less of an impulse towards like, oh, we got to be more authoritarian, we got to be more right wing. But you still have the same conflict at the core of the project. And as I said, listen, it's the most empathetic, understandable reason you could ever possibly imagine that people who were persecuted and murdered over years and years and years would want a state of their own where they could feel like this is my place and this is where I can be safe. But you cannot fundamentally have an ethno state and have a democracy as we understand it, where people have equal rights, because ultimately you're always going to end up in the situation where you know, you you worry about, oh, this group is gaining too many members and so we got to suppress them or we got to push them out or we got to make sure they can't vote or make sure they can't marry, make sure they can't move in. And you end up on exactly the trajectory that Israel has been on of moving more and more and more towards authoritarianism. I do see it at this point as this sort of inevitable slide. And yes, there's there are protests in Israel. There's a variety of political opinions and dissent. But the um, the overall project and who has power in the country has just moved increasingly far to the right, where some of some positions that would have been radical and fringe things that he was, you know, that Ken was talking about, that people floating just like just, you know, roll over the Palestinian, just expel them all. Those are views that are starting to be expressed in the mainstream and being held even by government officials. So um, people generally, there's some very basic things politically that people agree to. Uh, Like, for example, theocracy is bad. Ethno states are bad, (laughs) right? But then it's weird because for some reason we've grandfathered in Israel. Like, hey, since you guys were oppressed at one point, therefore we get it. But it's like, hold on. The black population and the Native American population here in the U.S., they've also been viciously oppressed. Now, we don't need to do the oppression Olympics and say whose is worse and whose is better, et cetera. Just know it's an obvious fact to point out that throughout history, there's been a lot of groups that have been oppressed. There's a lot of groups that have been 
genocided. Like, this isn't controversial, what I'm saying. Right. If we're consistent with that logic, should each and every one of them get an ethnostate or a theocracy? And, like, you know, I guess it's a controversial thing to say in the context of Israel, but no, these things are fundamentally at odds. You can't have an ethnostate and or a theocracy and say, but we're also like a democracy, bro. But if you're a democracy within the context of an ethnostate or a theocracy, then you're saying you're a democracy only among the group that you de- decide that you is decide okay, matters. which means by definition, you're going to have an apartheid-like system and you're going to have second-class citizens, if they're even citizens at all. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's not like... It, it's just a contra. I mean, there's there's just like a rot at the core of the whole conception of the project. And, you know, I know there are a lot of people who would say, like, just for me saying that I'm anti-Semitic, but I just think that that's, I think that's the reality. And it is increasingly manifested in the government's policies. You know, with regards to the political system here, um, and this is another place that's very dicey to talk about, because you're right, the reason why um, there's been such a hard bipartisan consensus in Washington that will not allow any dissent with regard to the government. Israel is APAC, is the fact that they are— It's all about the Benjamins, like a very wise lady once said. (laughs) I got a lot of trouble to say that. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to backpedal. It's true. Yeah, I mean, they're very well organized and they're well-funded. And until we have a dynamic where there's a price to pay for being complicit in the Israeli government crimes politically, we're not going to really break— you know, break the stalemate because you will have a few brave voices, people like Ilhan, people like Rashida Tlaib, who are willing to, you know, raise their voices in dissent and bear whatever the costs ultimately are. But the overall consensus is not going to change until you've changed those fundamental underlying political dynamics, because ultimately most of these actors are cynical political actors who are looking for what's the easiest place to stand. It's so obvious about obviously about who are our allies and what's the deal with the money. Because when you look at like a state like Saudi Arabia, theocracy, dictatorship, psychopath runs the country, chopping up journalists into bits and pieces, beheading people in the public square for apostasy and drug smuggling and sorcery. Like in any world that made sense where we actually prioritize international law and human rights, I mean, these people would finish near the bottom. Right. But since they're our ally, it's like, you know, you got the former president, you know, Donald Trump getting a hundred million dollar contract from from Saudi Arabia to do a golf tournament or a few golf tournaments or whatever. Jared Kushner getting $2 billion. With Israel, it's the exact same thing. You have APAC, you have a tremendous amount of money, the Israel lobby, and they fund both parties. And then it becomes taboo for anybody to to criticize it. But the fact of the matter is there's a disconnect between what is taboo in Washington, D.C. and what's taboo among the American people. I mean, you go talk to the reddest red person in Arkansas and the bluest blue person in Hawaii or California and, and tell them, hey, should you be allowed to criticize Israel? Right. And they're gonna be like, what? Yeah, what That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Of course. Right. Hey, should we give them billions and billions of dollars a year as they have universal health care? We don't even have universal health care here. I think you're going to get a resounding no on that one. Yeah. I mean, it was. Listen, if they were not our ally and a top and very important ally to us, there would be no controversy around saying this is apartheid. Because when you just look at the plain facts, as Ken lays down here, there's just no denying it based on the legal definition. And, you know, people like it was different in South Africa and it was more, you know, it was more aggressive and it was whatever. No one is saying this is exactly like South Africa. But does it meet clearly the legal definition of apartheid? There's just no denying it. And so the fact that we have such blinders on for the countries that are our friends in the world, I think is really revealed in this situation. Yeah, and the other thing I disagree with him on is I I do support BDS. I mean, I would lean more into BDS of the um, occupied territories 
Yeah. But I support BDS because boycott, divestment and sanctions, there is a history of it working. And by the way, that's why people make that comparison with South Africa, because when the international community finally was like, we've had enough, you force their hand. You force their hand. Because if they're going to, you know, if they lose 10 percent off their GDP as a result of a crackdown, it's like, okay, 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 we got to get to the table and we got to figure something out where we aren't basically going broke over the long run here. So that's the way to get it done. But that requires the international community getting together. And to be fair, in the General Assembly, the international community already agrees on it. It's just that in the Security Council, you give us veto power Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden these guys get to get away with whatever the hell they want to get away with. Yeah, I mean, hitting any any like entity with power going after the bottom line in the capitalist system seems like a pretty uh, direct maneuver and what has the most likelihood of actually achieving success. And that's exactly right. All right, guys, we love you all very much. Thank you to listening to us. We, I think this was a very informative episode, personally. I think that it's uh, pretty substantive. Yeah. So if you support the show, you can go on over to Substack and you can pay $5 a month and you get the video of all the interviews and you get it a day early. Everybody else, you can still go to Substack and sign up for free, and then you get the free audio podcast version, which usually drops a day later. If you uh, sign up on Substack, you get it like emailed to you as soon as it drops, so you, you know you're right on top of it, which is pretty cool. We have plenty of people who've signed up for free. Many have signed up for $5 a month. Thank you to everybody who has signed up for the $5 a month. We appreciate you. That's how we fund this show. You know, Crystal and I, we're not like Steven Crowder and Ben Shapiro <laughs> swimming in, in hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, that's crazy. And look... Part of it's as a matter of principle, we decided we don't want to do any ad reads. We don't want to talk to any corporations. We don't want to taint our perspective in any way, shape or form. But it's a bottom up type thing. And you guys make that bottom up type thing possible. It wouldn't be possible without you guys. So anyway, that's all I got for everybody. Love you. We'll talk to you next time. Peace. Peace.